Inhabit October 6th, reading Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper. Chapter 1, Discovering Our Disenchantment. I stumbled upon my disenchantment a few years after attending a dedication service at my parents' church. The new $80 million facility was roughly the size of the Death Star, with a parking lot that rivaled Six Flags in pure concrete acreage. There were more volunteers directing traffic and opening doors than most churches have for attendees. During the service, a special music number was sung by an unironically mustachioed man in a suit, a contemporary Christian power ballad with swooning strings and multiple key changes. About midway through the song, a large cross on the back wall began to glow. To be clear, when I say large, I mean large. The 80,000-seat auditorium has two balconies, and the distance from the stage to the catwalk above it is probably four stories. The cross spanned most of that height, and a simple brown cross on a beige wall. At first, the glow was subtle, a pale fluorescence around the edges that one might have dismissed as a weird reflection. But it soon became clear that there was some serious wattage behind it. As the mustachioed man stair-stepped keys from the bridge to the final chorus, the light grew brighter and brighter, like migraine-inducing bright casting long, stark shadows on the ed- on the stage. The song ended and the crowd roared with applause, many wiping tears on their arms as they leapt to their feet and clapped. Eventually, the glow diminished and the house lights came up and the service moved along. All the lights retained a standard, this-worldly brightness for the remainder of the service. At lunch afterward, between bites of chain restaurant lasagna, my dad asks, What did you think? What do you mean, I said. The cross. What did you think? It was pretty bright, right? I nodded. Do you think he hesitated and then said in a low voice, Do you think that it was real? I pushed a forkful of uncooked noodles through a gray puddle of Alfredo sauce that I regretted ordering. Then I searched his face. What do you mean? I repeated. The light, Dad said. It was awfully bright. Do you mean like a miracle? I asked. Dad leaned back. I mean, it probably wasn't, he said. He scooped up a slab of lasagna, grinned, and said, Right? My dad's a civil engineer. When I was a kid, he designed airport runways. He could bore you senseless talking about the different load-bearing capacities of concrete. Their response to heat and pressure, which one you'd want to pour in your basement and which is good for dropping a 747 out of the sky onto. He's highly rational 
and though he takes his faith seriously, he's not the type of person who would send cash to televangelists for prayer towels or get in line to be slain by the Spirit. I have seen him tear up once or twice in a church service, but to be fair, I'd guess he'd also cry at more than one Pixar movie. He definitely got misty during the last episode of ALF. There's a big difference between being sentimental and superstitious, and yet here he was raising the possibility that the glow behind a cross in the in a multi-million dollar facility with state-of-the-art audio, video, and light, lighting was some kind of miracle. At the time, Dad's question seemed so odd, so out of character. But this wasn't my dad. But this isn't my dad's story. It's mine. It's the story of how I stumbled upon my own disenchantment. Because what surprised me in the retrospect was not that my dad raised the possibility of a miracle in a modern industrial megachurch service. It was the utter impossibility of such a thing in my mind. Is it stranger to want to read a miracle into a stage effect or to be a Christian whose gut level reaction is, that's ridiculous? My guess is that the... Most would react as I did, surprised and cynical. There are rational reasons for being cynical about this particular miracle, but it didn't take any thought or reasoning for me, or in all likelihood for you, to be skeptical. It was my instinct, my gut reaction. I didn't have to think first and stitch together my reasons for believing the light was ordinary. I felt that it was impossible for it to be supernatural and then found evidence to support my suspicions. What I stumbled upon then was a deeply ingrained posture, a fully formed attitude towards the world that is suspicious not only of well-timed miracles in the middle of a big production number, but is actually suspicious of any kind of religious experience. I react to suggestion of a miracle, or for that matter, any thought about God, the spiritual or the transcendent, with skepticism and cynicism. It is my default setting. I am programmed to expect that the world is what I can see, touch, and measure, and any thought or idea, idea that runs against that experience is met with resistance. Programming is actually... A great way to think about it. I have learned to see the world this way, and I do not have to think about it anymore. I don't think I'm alone. I believe that most people experience something similar, a subtle but strong resistance to faith and a skepticism towards anything that veers towards the supernatural. This way of seeing the world is what Charles Taylor calls disenchantment. A disenchantment world has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presence, of spirits, and of God and of transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world, where what you see is what you get. It's not a world entirely without God or a world without religion. Rather, it's a world where God and religion are superfluous. 
You can believe whatever you want so long as you don't expect it to affect your everyday experience. Believe whatever you want about God or the afterlife, but trust in science and technology to explain everything about the real world. We didn't choose to think and feel this way. It's simply the world around, the world of ideas we inhabit. A thousand stories told and repeated about how the world works. Christians and non-Christians alike are disenchanted because we are all immersed in a world that presents a material understanding of reality as the plausible and grown-up way of thinking. Even people from faith traditions more open to mystery and miraculous works of the Spirit will experience this to some degree or another. It is the way of the Western world frames its ideas. Perhaps the best Perhaps to best understand disenchantment, we can look at its opposite, the enchanted world of a few centuries ago. In in that world, men and women saw themselves as spiritual creatures, vulnerable to blessings and curses, to angels and demons, and subject to the god or gods who made and oversaw the world. This enchanted world was part of a cosmos an orderly creation full of meaning, a place with a powerful origin and a clear destination, guaranteed by the god or gods who made it and rule over it. At the time, at the same time, this cosmos is full of mystery, a place where our knowledge has its limits and an unseen spiritual realm is constantly at work, shaping our everyday experience. In disenchantment, we no longer live in a cosmos. We live in a universe, a cold, hostile place whose existence is a big accident where humanity is temporarily animated, stuff that's ultimately meaningless and destined for the trash heap. Bravery in this disenchanted world means facing the emptiness head-on. Comedian Louis C.K. described this on Conan O'Brien's late night talk show. Louis was talking about why he wouldn't let his kids have cell phones, which led him to talk about his own sense of emptiness. What the phones are taking away is the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because underneath everything in your life, there is that thing. That empty, forever empty that knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. It's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything. You're in your car and you start and you start going. Oh no. Here it comes that I'm alone. It starts to visit you. Just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. That's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting, and they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. But people are willing to risk taking a life, ruining their own, because they don't want to be alone for a second, because it's so hard. In a disenchanted world, solitude is terrifying. We are alone. The universe is empty, forever empty. Lewis and others like him argue that facing that emptiness is the right thing to do. 
except the cold, harsh reality of the real world. Lewis makes explicit a vision of the world that shapes us whether we know it or not. Our culture rehearses stories, ideas, and dialogues that shame us away from any kind of belief in transcendence. Charles Taylor calls these disciplines of disenchantment. We regularly accuse each other of magical thinking, of indulging in myth, of giving away giving way to fantasy. We say that X isn't living in our, our century, that Y is medieval mind, while Z, whom we admire, is way ahead of her time. These disciplines prime us to respond to the world, much like Palov primed his dog to salivate at the sound of a ringing bell. When we are regularly shamed away from thoughts that venture near spirituality and transcendence, we learn to avoid it altogether, even in our thoughts. We develop a resistance to thoughts that would carry us outside of the world of the visible, measurable, or scientifically verifiable. Philosopher and social theorist Hannah R. Indent says this way of seeing the universe began with Galileo, who revealed that the earth and humanity wasn't the center of the universe. His discovery called into question the story we've been telling about who we were and what kind of world we lived in. If the earth wasn't at the center of the universe, did it still make sense to imagine all of the history as a divine drama unfolded by God for his glory and our God and our good? Were we actually just one story of many, one planet of many, adrift in a meaningless cosmic sea? At the same time, the universe revealed itself to be more vast, more hostile, and more empty than we'd previously imagined. It also revealed itself to be more knowable than we'd imagined, yielding its secrets as we developed the technology to unlock them. The telescope, the microscope, the atomic bomb, the hadron collider. Technology has given us the sense that everything within the universe can be made to appear to our senses and harnessed for our purposes. It may be meaningless, but it can be comprehended and mastered. This mastery, though, is a bit of an illusion as well. The accumulated body of science, of scientific knowledge, can tell us about all the canvas, oil, oils, and materials that combine to make a work of art, but they cannot tell us why it takes our breath away. Modern knowledge involves breath breaking things down into component parts. As philosopher Michael Fulcott argues in The Birth of the Clinic, nowhere is this more disturbingly clear than in modern medicine, which came not out of the development of knowledge about the health and thriving of human bodies, but out of the study of dead bodies exhumed exhumed, dissected, and evaluated. It is undeniable that this kind of knowledge has value, but Erdent's point and many others have joined her is 
to call into question whether this kind of knowledge is the only way of knowing something, and moreover, whether it's the best way of knowing something. Dallas Willard once wrote that while you will not find him apart from his body, the surest way to never find him would be to tear his body open looking for him. There is a mysterious wholeness about a person. Whatever you might know about their biochemistry, anatomy, psychology, and biography cannot account for who they are and what being with them feels like. Likewise, the total knowledge of how fusion makes stars burn, how light travels through the solar system, and how the gases in our atmosphere refract and bend that light is less wonderful than beholding a sunset. A food chemist who can tell you all about what a strawberry is, how it grows, what its chemical makeup is, why the tongue tells the brain it's sweet, somehow knows less than a child who, is ac who has actually tasted one. And wouldn't we all agree that the child's knowledge is superior, more useful, and at the very least more conducive to a good life? The average grandma can't tell you much about amino acids and protein chains, but ours at the stove have taught her not to salt the tomato sauce until it's reduced. She can tell you by the way a pork chop resists pressure from a spatula whether or not it's done, and she knows that the acidity of limes can cut the heat of curry. Do you want her or the chemist making your dinner? What we're talking about is the difference between knowing, a category we might use to describe abstract knowledge, like the kind that leads to success on tests and money on Jeopardy, and know-how, the kind of knowing that's more integrated with life, or better put, more integrated with the body. It is a lived-in knowing and an experienced knowing. The Bible is treated like any other object in a disenchanted world. Our common approach is to study it, and by study, we mean something akin to the study of science or the study of language. The Bible is anatomized, broken into its component parts. To really understand it, we must understand first century Judaism, the original languages, and the systematic theologies, which are the frame across which we can spread it. This ends up polarizing the church's approach to the Bible. On one hand, some feel no need to preserve the Bible as inerrant or infallible, and so the Bible is picked apart. What's true is sorted from what's false according to the currents of culture, cultural whim. This approach taken by everyone from Thomas Jefferson to Jesus to the Jesus Seminar to the current revisionism about sex around sexuality tells us that scripture comes from an ignorant social context, which allows critics to separate socially acceptable biblical ideas, humanism, pacifism, benevolence, and mercy from those that are now unacceptable, such as belief in the supernatural or se sexual ethics. On the other hand, some try to squeeze the Bible through the lens of disenchantment in another way. Here, the authority of the Bible is maintained, but the Bible must act like any other modern text, 
like a textbook or the instruction book that comes with a cordless drill. This demands a rigid literalism and leads to attitudes like 30 Rock's Kenneth Parcell, who said his favorite subject in school was science, where they studied the Old Testament. Kenneth is a good fundamentalist, and James K.A. Smith puts it, No one is more modern than a fundamentalist. The important thing to note is that the approach of liberals and fundamentalists is much more is much the same. The text has no life on it of its own. It isn't a living whole, a breathing fiery creature full of mystery, something to be approached with care and humility. It's a subject to be mastered, a corpse to be dissected. It's place it's placed on a steel table and subjected to thousand to a thousand acts of violence. It is split into its component parts, footnoted for historic for historicity, and commented on from every angle. In effect, it becomes hedged behind high walls of specialized knowledge, and most Christians, unless they've spent many hours in classes or in inductive Bible studies, are as frightened to talk about what a text might mean as they are to answer a question in a math or science class. Better to save it for the experts and leave it untouched. If by chance they have applied themselves to many hours of study, they become, as Professor Snape once described Hermione Ginger Granger in Harry Potter, an insufferable know-it-all. They have a frightening certainty. The text has been mastered, the questions all answered. Their Bible has no mysteries. It is all knowable now. What remains after this treatment is an abstraction. For disenchanted Christians, the Bible is the source of knowledge about God, the gospel, and the spiritual life. Nothing is sacred but the Bible, of, but of course, by that, we don't mean this Bible or that Bible. We don't mean any actual Bible in existence, because what was sacred and God-breathed was the Bible and its original manuscripts, and we don't possess any of those. What remains is not the Word of God, but the ideas of the Bible, an abstract theoretical Bible that is perfect and perfectly out of reach for any and all of us. As a result, we are necessarily thrown into a posture of suspicion about everything we encounter in the spiritual life, every text, every sermon, every person's testimony. We must ask, does it fit? Does it fit into the schema we've adopted that frames our thinking about the Bible? Are we certain that we're right? This way of knowing breeds fear into, in two ways. On the one hand, we fear attacks from the outside, from unbelievers, on the Bible's reliability. On the other hand, we're afraid of ourselves, worried that we might not know enough or worse, that we might believe the wrong idea. This fear causes us to double down on our disenchanted approach to the Bible, coming back with a scalpel to dissect it again and look into Look for the evidence that supports the Bible's historicity and our beliefs about it. This is a quest for certainty. 
To be sure, these things matter immensely. We need to know we can trust the Bible, and we need to feel confident that we believe the right things about it. But in many ways, I fear that many Christians are stuck there and that the Bible is never more than an object for analysis for them, as opposed to it being the voice of the beloved. We can master it like the periodic table of elements or the statistics of the New York Yankees while keeping it divorced from real life. If the Bible is the voice of the beloved, then there must be a way of reading it that connects with us as a whole people, just as knowing and being known in a relationship as is a whole person enterprise. There must be ways of reading and engaging scripture that strike us at a level of our emotions, our imagination, and our bodies. To return to the food and cooking metaphor, there's a way of talking about food that leaves us ignorant to its flavors. With scripture, we need to find pathways that enable us to taste and see that the Lord is good, to borrow a phrase. We hunger for that kind of know-how, for a relationship with the scriptures that leads to something deeper than head knowledge. We long for wonder, and we long for communion with God. And we're so terrified of getting something wrong that we either avoid scripture altogether or treat it as a cold, dead abstraction, unable to connect to it to real life. In Hunting the Divine Fox, Robert Farkaplan, a writer that epistle a writer and episcopal priest, argued that this kind of dry scholarly abstraction is a great way to miss the point of the text. Describing Genesis 1, he wrote, In the old days, when theologians were less uptight about their respectability in the eyes of biblical critics, the odd, majestic plural of the that fateful let us make in Genesis 1.26 was always taken as one of the Old Testament evidences for the doctrine of the Trinity. Nowadays, you you lose your union card if you do things like that, but I still think it's nice. What's nice about that us is precisely its oddness. It's the kind of mysteriously gra- gratish, gratuitous detail that so much fun to come across in the work of a master craftsman. See? You need to play with scriptures or else you get it all wrong. Deriving the doctrine of the Trinity from the us is nothing more than a little bit of Baroque ornamentation. It's legitimate as long as you keep things in balance. You may not know exactly why it's there, but you feel it's trying to tell you something, trying to elicit some kind of response from you. He invites us to an approach that is perfectly serious and perfectly silly at the same time, which is just great. It's like making love. You can laugh while you do it. As a matter of fact, if you don't, at least sometimes, you're probably a terrible lover. Watch out for biblical commentators, therefore, who sound as if they're holding a sex manual in the other hand. Love-making might be the perfect way to think about the problem with 
chanted readings of the Bible. Lovers might study technique, but they never mistake it for the point of love making. They're after something deeper, something more akin to communion. They surrender to one another. They surrender to one another. They want to encounter the person. And the great gift that lovers can give to one another is their undivided attention and presence. Failing that, we feel cold, distant, lonesome, and used. If on some level we are doubtful of the presence of an actual God in our actual world, there's no wonder that we might confuse abstracted technical knowledge of the Bible with a spiritual life. How often have you encountered someone whose knowledge of the Bible is encyclopedic, but whose presence is harsh, dark, and miserable? How often do you hear cliched stories about Christians with all the right answers that stiff waiters on tips are horrible to their spouses or neighbors and who, wouldn't, and who you wouldn't trust with your dog? The unchanged lives of Christians who have tremendous knowledge of the Bible highlight two of the great consequences of our disenchantment. We think knowledge of the Bible is all that matters, so we fail to attend to our character, our soul, and our relationships. Our way of living the Christian life leaves all of these things unchanged. We need a way of thinking about the scripture that allow us to come to it, it as whole persons who think, feel, and imagine and find nourishment on all levels. We need to preserve the Bible's character as personal speech exchanged between the lover and the beloved. The voice that rings from the Bible is the voice of the one we long to hear from, long to know, long to find our rest in. A while back, my wife and I spent an evening at a cabin in the woods celebrating a friend's birthday with several other couples. I woke early the next morning to go for a run on a trail that led through the woods to a pond on the other side of a rocky hill. It was a cold fall morning, and the path was covered in leaves and dense fog. As I ran, I saw something on the ground that looked like pulled taffy, Parallel ribbons and threads curled white and translucent. I stopped to pick up a piece of it and was astonished at its lightness. I turned and looked back down the path and noticed more of it along the edges of the path and up the hillside into the woods, tangled in vines and leaves. Looking back at the piece in my hand, I re it reminded me of the geometry of conch shells. It was beautiful. I picked up another piece and crushed it in my hand. It immediately became a fine powder. I went back to the cabin and brought a few friends out to the woods to see them. They were all mystified. It felt like we were in the opening scene of a science fiction movie. Aliens had landed in the night and left these ghostly shells as the only evidence of their presence. But in the age of smartphones and Googles, it didn't take long to get an explanation. They're called frost flowers, and they appear in the late fall and early winter. As the air temperature drops below freezings, plant stems contract, squeezing sap and water out into the air, forming ribbons of crystal. 
It's relatively rare, but perfectly explainable. And yet, I don't believe this explanation is sufficient. While we might be able to trace the physics of the frost flowers, does that account for their beauty and for the way they captivated us that morning? It's better to describe them as one more meaningless thing in a meaningless universe, or is it better as a gesture of an artist? There's a line in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where Indy tells a group of students, archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. If it's truth you're looking for, Dr. Thier's philosophy class is right down the hall. I wonder if we wouldn't benefit from a little, a little from this distinction too. If we think of facts as those measurable, verifiable ways of seeing the world, and if we think of truth as a bigger narrative that makes sense of them and ties them together, then, then we might say that Western culture has been consumed with the quest for facts for the last few hundred years, but has lost sight of the truth along the way. It's possible that the truth of the world isn't something, or is it possible that the truth of the world isn't something we can test and measure? Is it possible that there are layers of our experience that lie beyond our physical senses, layers that reveal themselves in the way our hearts ache when we see beautiful things, or in the powerful love and burdening we feel at the birth of a child, or even in the darkness as we sense when sorrows strike? Is it possible that we dwell in a cosmos, not a universe, and that a moment like this one, when beauty stops us in our tracks, is an encounter with something more than frozen water and sap, something more like a love letter? Maybe the facts of, the, of frost flowers don't tell us the truth of frost flowers. Our faith is uniquely challenged today, but it's false to think that a challenged faith is unique. The scriptures tell a story of countercultural faith, and they always have. Where, were, where we are challenged by disenchanted millennials, Previous generations sought God down the street from temples to sex goddesses and across the river from the Pantheon or had to uncover the gospel in an era of Christendom when the church's political power obscured its spiritual power. In all times and places, the good news has been challenged by counterfeits and competitors. In our age, we need to know whether there's something on the other end of the line when we pray. We need to know whether that person is a superfluous, disinterested deity or a loving father whose eye is on the sparrow, who is acquainted with suffering and grief, who rejoices over us with singing. And while not all Christians have lived with our particular modern doubts, many of them are as old as humanity. What kind of God is this? How can I know him? Can he answer the questions about life and meaning that 
simmered just under the surface of my thoughts. Our world offers answers to these questions. Louis C.K.'s comments are one example. Be brave. Face the void of meaninglessness. That approach hums in the background of our lives, and whether we like it or not, shapes our experience of faith. In contrast, the prophet Jeremiah calls us to consider an ancient path. When he spoke those words, Israel had abandoned their God, and Jeremiah was inviting them to come home. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 6.16 The prophet invites us to consider a path that is profoundly countercultural. We live in an age obsessed with the new, new gadgets, new experiences, new sexual horizons. The list goes on and on. We think, the last iPhone didn't satisfy my aching heart, but maybe this one will. And that logic gets applied equally to consumer goods, jobs, and marriages. Yet the prophet calls us to an ancient path. No need for innovation. To move forward, we must look backward. To find the path, we must stand by the roads and look. It's a call to stillness. To stand rather than to continue our aimless wandering. To resist the momentum of our chaotic world and look, think, consider where we're going and why. Hannah Arnett once wrote that we need to think that we are doing, think what we are doing, saying that the problem of our modern age is thoughtlessness. We live busy lives and our thoughtlessness allows us to continue to be carried along in the currents of an unreflective culture. Arnett's Thoughts echo Jeremiah's, stop, look, think, pay attention. To embrace this invitation requires two things. First, we must understand that we already have a way of life. It's not enough to say the world is disenchanted. We must also acknowledge that we are disenchanted and that we did it to ourselves. We have embraced ways of living, habits, practices, and stories that were often that we are often aware of, that prime us for disbelief and doubt. Our way of life presupposes that God is superfluous, and when we try to live as if we, he weren't, we discover a deep internal dissonance. Understanding what those habits and practices are and how they work on us is the first step. The second step is embracing a different story, with it, and with it, a different set of habits and practices. Here we can begin to talk about what the church has historically called spiritual disciplines, but here we encounter difficulty again. At their best, the disciplines, such as prayer, scripture reading, and fasting, are a way of life, habits that allow us inhabit to inhabit a reality. But that's not how the disciplines are usually discussed. Instead, there's an awful lot of finger-wagging. Have you read your Bible today? Spirituality, where the disciplines are part of a moral checklist that keeps God from being angry with us. To see the disciplines in this way is not only to confuse their purpose, it's to confuse the gospel itself. 
which begins with the well-established fact that God is no longer angry with us. If we fail to understand the gospel, then the disciplines become a means to an end, a way to try to earn God's attention and favor. But if our understanding, but if our starting place with God is the radical grace extended through Jesus, then the spiritual disciplines are invitations, not obligations, ways of being with God, not appeasing him. Jeremiah's words help us here too. We are not called first to act, but to cease. Stand and look. The work that so much of our lives are spent frantically trying to accomplish, self-justifying spiritual work, a hunger to earn the approval of others, our own internal moralistic standards, has already been finished. Stop struggling to earn approval. All is accomplished in Jesus. Once we accept that finished work, we'll find an ancient path that allows us to walk more and more deeply into the remade world of God's kingdom. As we take up ancient practices like prayer, scripture reading, and fasting, we will see the way they comfort our disenchantment way disenchanted way of knowing the world the kingdom is a disen is an enchanted place and by god's grace we can experience the kingdom's mystery and wonder throughout our lives in her gorgeous memoir h is for hawk helen mcdonald tells the story of raising a go shock after the death of her father it's a story of grief loss and, in a way, resurrection as she works to teach this feral and powerful creature to fly and hunt with her. On one of her early and failed attempts to fly the hawk, she joins her friend Stuart in English countryside. Disappointed that the hawk won't fly, they walk back through a field towards their cars. Stuart stops dead. Stuart? Look, he says, look at that. What? I say, turning and shading my eyes. I can't see anything. Look towards the sun. I am. Look down. Then I see it. The bare field we'd flown the hawk upon is covered in gossamer, millions of shining threads combed downwind across every inch of soil. Lip by sinking sun and quivering silk runs like light on water all the way to my feet. It is a thing of unearthly beauty, the work of a million tiny spiders searching for new homes. Each had spun a charged silken thread out into the air to pull it from its hatch place, ascending like an interpede hot air balloon hot air balloonist to drift and disperse and fall i stared at the field for a long time what mcdonald experiences in that moment is revelation those shimmering threads had been there the whole time while standing in the field watching the hawk willing it to fly her world was cold and hostile but given a few words and standing in a different place her way of seeing was transformed. 
Our lives are very much about seeing. We walk about seeing opportunities or seeing a way forward. We train ourselves to see in certain ways too, to see potential in an empty canvas or a blank page or in raw ingredients of a meal. Athletes train to see the trajectory of a fastball or an opening in pass coverage. Once you've learned to see the world in certain ways, you don't have to think about it anymore. It becomes automatic. Jeremiah's invitation and Jesus' invitation, too, is to see the world in a different way. Stand by the roads and look. It's an invitation that offers rest for our souls and reveals the world to be more, much more wondrous than we thought or feared. It's a world permeated by God's grace and filled with his presence from the brightest to the darkest places, a world where everything is being reconciled and made new in Jesus. What kind of world do we live in? Does it make the most sense to say that our encounters with beauty and wonder are happy accidents, random stimuli that happen to trigger our brain's pleasure center? Or is it possible that we live in a world where spider silks lit by the setting sun or a hillside fleck with frost flowers can be seen as something more than random? We feared it to be otherwise, and many have talked themselves into believing those fears are true, contented themselves with an empty universe. Low expectations protect us from disappointment, but Jeremiah's invitation and Jesus' own is to hope that the world is a place of meaning and love. Walking that ancient path where the good way is opens our eyes to see and reside in a different world.